This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, found on page 45 in the Bibles there in the chairs. We've gone from page 1017 to page 45, or 1 Peter 5 to Exodus 1. We're beginning a series of studies in the book of Exodus, uh, probably not through the entirety at one time. Uh, probably at least up through the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Please turn to Exodus 1. While you're turning there, I do want to just add uh, emphasis to Mike's announcement, invite you all to return tonight uh, for the ordination and installation of the deacons you have elected, uh, but also to join us as we continue our se- uh, series of studies in the book of Hebrews, looking tonight at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Today, this morning, we're in Exodus 1. Hear the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and set them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes this early morning of the hour to study your word, to learn those things that you have for us here in the scriptures. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you trust God? Can you really? When everything around you seems to indicate otherwise, can you trust God? That's not the only theme of the book of Exodus, but it is a major theme that runs through the chapters of this book. Can we trust God? Can we take him at his word? Can we rely on his character? Even when circumstances may say otherwise. You've heard the expression going from the kettle into the fire. Well, that's exactly what happened with Israel. They went from the kettle, if you want to put them in water, or they went from the frying pan, if you want to put them uh, in the frying pan. Either way, it was famine. Either way, it was death. Into the fire. They thought they had reached a safe place, and for a little while, they did. Maybe you've had that experience of going someplace, and you thought, Well, things are good now. Things are going to be okay, only to turn out worse than they were before. And that's what happened with Israel in the book of Exodus. You really can't understand Exodus without understanding Genesis. The writer of Exodus, Moses, is very familiar, obviously, with Genesis and the events that take place there. In fact, some of the same kinds of words occur here in this chapter that we find in Genesis, and it, it, in fact, begins with sort of a recap of what had happened in Genesis. It begins with naming the children of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel who came down into Egypt. Of course, Joseph was already there, and if you know Genesis, you know the story of how Jacob's sons uh, didn't exactly like their younger brother Joseph because of his tendency to boast of dreams he had, that they would all bow down and worship him. And so they thought about killing him, but they decided to make a little money off of him, and they sold him. Midianite traders who then took Joseph down to Egypt and sold him there. Joseph uh, wound up with a pretty nice job, really, in in Egypt and in Potiphar's household until he was falsely accused, something he didn't do, and he was put in prison. In fact, he was there because he tried to do what was right. And while he's in prison, uh, seeming to be uh, languishing away in a foreign land and foreign prison, uh, there are a couple of men there in the prison. In fact, they're servants of the king, servants of Pharaoh, a cupbearer, and the baker. And they both have these dreams. And Joseph, because the Lord revealed it to him, is able to tell them the meaning of their dreams. The cupbearer was restored to his position. The baker was hanged. Well, Joseph's still in prison, remains in prison for a while, and finally Pharaoh has a strange dream, and the cupbearer says, you know, when I was in prison, forgot all about him, but there was this guy there, this Hebrew, who could interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, well, bring him to me. Let's see what he can do. And so Joseph, with the help of the Lord, is able to tell Pharaoh his dream, to interpret the dream, 
able to give him the meaning of it. The dream was a dire one, that famine was coming on the land of Egypt. There would be seven good years, seven prosperous years, then followed by very severe famine. And Joseph's advice is, well, you need to prepare during the good years for the famine. And Pharaoh was impressed. He says, well, who better to lead us in this effort than you? And so in God's providence, Joseph rises to become prime minister of Egypt, second only under Pharaoh himself. And things were good. Joseph brought his family down from Canaan, where the famine was severe, to Egypt, and they were welcome guests. In fact, Pharaoh said, the land is yours, and puts them in the land of Goshen to settle down. In fact, Pharaoh even tells Joseph, if you know of any of your brothers who are especially talented, to put them over my herds, put them in charge of my flocks. Welcome guests in the land of Egypt. And that's really where we pick up here with Exodus chapter 1. Those tribes are named, they go down, Joseph's in Egypt. So verses 1 through 5, kind of a recap, and then 6 through 7 fill in the gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Then Joseph died. We get that at the end of Genesis. And all his brothers and all that generation, time has a way of rolling on. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. The language here echoes that of the mandate in Genesis to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And that's exactly what they do. But there's more going on here than just the fulfillment of that cultural mandate. There is, in fact, here the fulfillment of the promises of God, who had said to Abraham, Abraham, back when he was childless, back when he seemed to have no prospect of having children, look at the stars. That's what your children will be like. Look at the sand on the seashore. That's what your descendants will be like. I will make of you a, a great nation. So this is not just fulfillment of the cultural mandate. This is the fulfillment of the promise of God. God's being faithful. Everything looks great. They've escaped the famine. They are preserved. They're now here in Egypt. They're growing in number. They're multiplying. They're filling the land. And then there's a turn. A new king. A new administration. Whether the one immediately preceding the one who elevated Joseph or not, we don't know, but certainly uh, pretty close after that. A new king arises, and that's when the problems begin. But you see, what this chapter teaches us is that God is faithful, even when it doesn't look like it, even when things, everything, appears to be going wrong. God is fulfilling his promise even when Pharaoh makes his best effort to stop it, even when an earthly king does everything he can to prevent that promise from happening, God fulfills his promise. Let's look at some of these efforts here. Best effort number one, slavery, to enslave the Israelites. Verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, We don't know if he was aware of Joseph. Surely he must have known his Egyptian history enough to know what had happened there. But the point is, he didn't have the regard for Joseph or the esteem for Joseph and what he had done for Egypt. He was just a name. He was just a person, if he was aware of him at all, and could well have been. Who didn't know Joseph? 
and he's concerned because he sees in the Israelites a clear and present danger. Verse 4, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, join our enemies, fight against them. Now, is there any grounds for this suspicion? No. Other than, and, and was this even the real reason? Well, certainly it could be a reason, national security concern. We've got this population that's growing, that's a threat to us. And if we went to war, they may join our enemies. They may fight against us. By the way, do you notice how he starts that? Come, let us do something. Does that ring a bell? If it does, you're a very close reader of the Bible. If it does, you probably know the Bible pretty well. It's not so obvious. Come, let us do something. Does that ring a bell? Anybody want to take a shot at what that echoes, what it sounds like? Exactly. Gold star. Come, let us build a tower to the heavens, right? Same language. Come, let us do something. Again, the power of man trying to counter the authority of God, to counter the will of God. Come, let's stand in the way of God. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's protect our honor. Let's watch out for our glory. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it is the same language. There is an echo there. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. How are they going to do this? Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Specifically construction projects, building these store cities, Python and Ramses, which may have been the name of the Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread Abroad, or someone much, much, much later said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. They were persecuted, they were oppressed, and yet they continued to grow. They could not be stopped. And the Egyptians were in dread, or another rendering could be they loathed the people of Israel. And notice the repetition. Hebrew narrative tends to, we, we, you know, we, we italicize, we underline, we highlight Hebrew narrative, Hebrew prose tends to emphasize it by repetition. Notice the repetition. It's, it's obvious. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Almost makes you break a sweat and get tired just reading the verse. The point is, they were, they were being worked mercilessly. They were being worked in such a way as to break their spirits, as to crush their wills, as to wreck their health, to give them no time for anything else. You see, this was Pharaoh's best effort, number one, was to enslave the people of Israel. Where's God? You don't hear God saying anything here. All you hear is Pharaoh talking. In fact, through this chapter, it's just Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Where's God? Well, God's here. God's at work. In fact, if you're familiar with Genesis, none of this is a surprise. I want you to look at just several passages. Turn back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 1. 
Genesis 15. Remember, this is where God makes his covenant with Abraham, where the smoking firepot, the presence of the Lord, passes between the pieces of the animal. God making this covenant with Abraham, or Abram as he was then. But verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You know, way back in Genesis 15, God said this was going to happen. One other, a couple other places. One is Genesis 46, verse 3. Genesis 46, verse 3. God calls to Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Verse 3, then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, after he discovers his son is there. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Notice the Lord says he's going to make them a great nation there, and that's exactly what was happening. The Lord also went with them into Egypt. God had not abandoned his people. He was, as he said, with them. And then one last reference in Genesis, Genesis 50, end of the book, verses 24 and 25. Joseph is at the end of his life. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And they did. Pharaoh's best effort to enslave the people. Well, God secretly was working out his purposes. The people were growing. They were multiplying. They were filling the land just as the Lord had said they would, and just as he had promised to Abraham. From God's point of view, everything was going exactly as he had planned. Best effort number two on the part of Pharaoh. Well, slavery, they're still growing. What do we do? Well, effort number two was male infanticide through the midwives. We see this in verses 15 and following. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other now, these probably these women were probably chief midwives, you know, head of the midwife local 311 or whatever it was, uh, because in a nation as big as Israel, there no doubt were more than two midwives. So these may, and since Pharaoh was talking to them, these may have been the leaders of the midwives. And notice also one other thing. They have names. Did that not strike you as a little bit odd? You're reading through this. You have this nation, Israel, that's growing within a nation. You have the king of Egypt who is concerned about it. And he mentions two midwives and gives their names. Two otherwise insignificant women, unknown, and they're named. They have their names in the Bible. You see, God knows his people. God watches out for his people. You have these two faithful servants of the Lord who are mentioned here because of their faithfulness. 
The king, of Egypt, the king of Egypt is not even named. He's just the king of Egypt. But these two women are given names. Their names are revealed, Shifra and Pua. And Pharaoh's plan is to tell them, when you serve as a midwife, if the baby's born and it's a son, kill it. If it's a daughter, let it live. Now, it's a little bit, I was trying to think how this works. It, it must have been somewhat covert. Because if word gets out the midwives are killing the sons, I think the Hebrew women would take their chances on their own. So maybe it was a thing of if they have opportunity, they kill the baby, they say to the mother, I'm sorry, stillborn. I don't know. Maybe it was a blatant murder. At any rate, the midwives would have no part of this. The midwives, notice verse 17, feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Why sons, by the way? Why not just kill all of them? Well, Probably because the sons, if the fear of military uh, alliance were concerned, it's the sons who would grow up to be soldiers. They were in a more enlightened time when it was the men, not the women, who fought their country's battles. It was also a concern that through lineage, uh, the sons would be the ones through whom descendants, uh, descendant passed. The lineage was counted. And so by getting rid of the sons, it would disrupt that lineage. More easy to assimilate the, the daughters, especially if there were no Hebrew men to marry. The daughters assimilated into uh, he, uh, Egyptian culture, just assimilate them. They would intermarry and eventually be absorbed for all these reasons. He singled out the sons. But either way, the midwives weren't going to do it because they feared the Lord. They didn't fear the king. They may have had concerns about him, but they feared God more than they feared the king. They weren't going to fear him who could destroy the body, but him who could destroy both body and soul in hell. And so some time must have passed. Verse 18, it's evident that the boys are living. And so Pharaoh calls them. Notice they still have to answer for their actions. God doesn't whisk them away. He doesn't somehow hide them. Pharaoh wants a word with them. He calls them into his office, and he says, why have you done this? Why have you let these children live? You've disobeyed a direct command of the king. They could have been executed for it. The midwife said, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. You have to wonder if that's not kind of a slam on Egyptian women. You also have to wonder if it's a lie. You know, were these women lying to cover themselves? Maybe they were. Or it may have been the absolute truth. God may have been blessing the Hebrew women that they delivered quickly and easily before the midwives were even necessary. God protecting his people. The midwives never had an opportunity to carry out the king's command. They may well have been telling the truth here. At any rate, God was pleased with them. Standing up to the king the way they did, refusing to do that wrong thing, choosing to obey God rather than men. Verse 20, God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied, continued to grow very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They multiplied. They grew. Sometimes you can pick out kind of the, the point of a chapter of, 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 the, of Scripture by words that recur. In case you haven't caught this yet, verse 7 they multiplied. Verse 10, lest they multiply. Verse 12, the more they multiplied. And then again in verse 20, and the people multiplied. Check the theme. 
God's people are going to grow no matter what this world tries to do to stop it. He gave them families. Male infanticide through the midwives. Best effort number three. Number one was slavery. Number two was to use these midwives to, to slaughter their own people. And then finally, Pharaoh just opens it wide open. Male infanticide through all Egyptians. Notice verse 22, full holocaust. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son born to the Hebrews, throw him in the Nile. You can let every daughter live. Finally, just says all of you, any of you Egyptians, you see a male son, toss him in the river. Daughters, you can leave them alone. And it ends there. How many of you have ever read books where every chapter ends with a cliffhanger? You know, the cliffhanger, it's called a cliffhanger because, you know, the guy literally is dangling over the cliff. Oh, no, what's going to happen to him? Well, it may not be that situation, but some of you read the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew books. Those, those are famous for that. You know, each chapter ends, <gasps> what's going to happen next? And so you want to read the next chapter. You want to find out what happens next. Or TV shows that end well, something's happened. Oh, no. Now you can't wait a week to see the next show to see how it ends. Well, that's how this chapter ends, with a cliffhanger. You know, the slavery, the, the, there's this call to the midwives to kill the babies. They won't do it. They stand up. Whew, everything's still good. Now Pharaoh ratchets it down a little bit tighter. That's where it ends. Because that's where real life is. That's where we are. We don't know how tomorrow is going to play out. We don't know how the problem that arose yesterday will be resolved this week. We live a cliffhanger because we don't know what the next day holds. We don't know how situations in our lives are going to turn out or what problem could arise tomorrow, this afternoon. But you see, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord's providence is still there, even in the suspense of his faithfulness. We don't know how God will prove faithful tomorrow. We know that he will. And even as you read the end of it here, we have every reason to think God will be faithful, even in this new and dire situation that has arisen, because he has been faithful in the past. But there's kind of an exciting edge to that, isn't it? Not knowing how God will be faithful, even as we know that he will be faithful. And that's where Exodus chapter 1 leaves us. As one writer put it, he said, the God who held you all through Exodus 1 will not let you go after verse 22. And that's where we live. God has been with us thus far. We know that he will not drop us today or tomorrow. But you know, there's something bigger going on here. This is great history, and it is history that is taking place here. But there's also big theology going on here. There's something much bigger than Pharaoh and his obsession with minority growth rates. There's something profoundly theological going on here. Because you don't have just Pharaoh persecuting the people of God. You have the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. This is Cain and Abel all over again. Cain took his brother out in the field and he killed killed him because his brother's deeds were righteous. Pharaoh is afraid of the people of God and so he wants to exterminate them. He wants to get rid of them. You see, this is something much bigger than just Pharaoh. This is Satan. 
This is Satan's hatred of the church, hatred of the people of God, seeking to exterminate them. And we'll see it time and again through Exodus and, of course, through the Old Testament on into the New. This is Herod ordering the slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem. Long time before that occurred, but it's the same spiritual theological dynamic taking place. The seed of the serpent attacking the seed of the woman, trying to wipe out the people of God. But what we learn in this chapter is in that struggle, God's providence may be hard to understand. His providence may well be hard to understand. It was for them. They didn't know how this turned out. And it is for us. Because we often don't know how things are going to be resolved, how they're going to turn out. God's providence is hard to understand. But dear friends, in those situations of bewilderment or bafflement, Remember this, while his providence may be hard to understand, his love for you is as clear as the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And easy it is to read it knowing chapter 2. You'll raise up a deliverer. But Father, they didn't know that. All they knew was a, bad, a good situation had gone very bad, and they were suffering terribly, and there was no end and no relief in sight. Father, help us, like Shifra, like Pua, to be faithful to you, even in suffering, even when given orders that we can't obey and yet to disobey may bring serious consequences themselves. Help us, Father, to trust you because we've seen your faithfulness in the past, because we know who you've revealed yourself to be in the Scriptures, because you are the one who sent us the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at the cross, we realize that your purposes for us are always good, all the time no matter what's going on all around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.